Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Brooke Masters. Joining me in the studio is the FT's U.S. banking editor, Tom Braithwaite, and Alistair Gray, insurance correspondent. James Schotter will be dialing in from Switzerland, where he is the Switzerland and Austria correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at U.S. banks calling for an easing of the Basel III liquidity requirements as the Federal Reserve starts a whole round of stress testing for liquidity. We'll discuss the recent developments in the LIBOR scandal as three men are arrested in London and UBS faces a record find of over a billion dollars to settle allegations that it manipulated the benchmark interest rate. And finally, we'll take a look at insurance GCFEs, which is banker slang for global systemically important financial institutions. And essentially what that means is its efforts to keep the insurance companies from wrecking the world economy. First, let's talk about regulation of liquidity. Tom, we heard last week in a scoop in the FT that the Fed will be running stress tests for liquidity. What does that mean? We obviously spent a lot of time looking at capital in the US and the stress tests are now annual and banks have to pass those if they want to pay increased dividends or bigger share buybacks. But I think now they're turning their attention to whether banks can fund themselves appropriately and liquidity is usually the death knell for any institution, whether it's MF Global or Lehman, if they run out of funding, then they're done for. So I think the Fed wants to make sure that US banks are in a good place. And this comes at a time when global regulators are also looking at liquidity. The Basel III package includes the world's first ever global requirements for liquidity focused on a 30-day market crisis situation. And what's interesting about this is they are finally going to nail down the details of this rule, even though it's due to kick in in 2015. It's one of the last bits of the Basel III package. We heard over the weekend that U.S. banks in particular are lobbying really hard to try and change the way the requirements are calculated in order to make it easier to pass. Do you think that's because they have a particular problem with liquidity, or it's just they're taking the lead because they're feeling pretty punchy these days? I think banks have been lobbying the Fed on this for a while, and I think the Fed is broadly sympathetic. No, I don't think it's that US banks are, are weaker. I think, you know, essentially, they feel that they've done as much as they need to do and that they're in a good place. There's a big divergence here. If you look at Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase, these are banks with hundreds of billions of dollars of deposits across hundreds of different branches. And there's a divergence between that sort of bank and the Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs of the world. I think the issue really is whether Morgan Stanley in particular can prove to its investors and regulators that it has the sources of funding it needs. And, and you know, look at Morgan Stanley, they've now built a $170 billion buffer in terms of liquidity reserve. So but that number after a, a wobble last year does seem to have reassured the market. But there's always going to be an issue, I think, an issue of confidence in the pure investment banks, those that remain, as to whether they can ever adequately say we can survive any scenario for as long as it takes. 
And I think there's also an issue for some of the universal banks in Europe who never really thought about liquidity because they also have large deposit bases that are seen as sticky. And at the same time, we're using a lot of wholesale funding. And they are having the hardest time weaning themselves off the wholesale funding. So they have been big pushers for variations to the liquidity rules as well. Basel, we know, met over the weekend. They did not announce an agreement, but I'm told that there is a tentative agreement that was reached that does ease the requirements somewhat, but we probably won't know the details until January when the central bankers and heads of supervision who supervise the Basel Committee meet, work out the final details, fight over whatever's still out there, and then announce something. It should be really interesting, though. Yeah, and I think you know the U.S. regulators have taken a hard line on capital. I don't, I don't think they're a soft touch here, um, but they, the, I, th- I think there is a belief inside the Fed and other uh, regulators that the, the banks have a fair point that they don't need to keep piling on liquidity. It's true, actually. The Bank of England is starting to have the same view, and they were one of the really early hardliners on liquidity. The problem is, of course, if a bank is holding liquid assets, it's not lending. And that's a real problem in an era where we need more bank lending. Yeah. And as we saw this year, if you're JP Morgan and you've got hundreds of billions of dollars, you might decide that you'll take a punt on the London whale, as they did, and uh, do funky things in your credit correlation book and rack up $6 billion of losses. So there are issues with excess liquidity. It's not necessarily the the, the savior of the of the banking world. That's a really good point. Now we'll turn on to the second topic of the day, which is the LIBOR scandal, which, as everyone knows, is one of our favorites here on Banking Weekly. Last week was a really eventful week. James, can you tell us what happened? Yes, UBS, which is one of the banks at the center of this scandal, was caught up again. I mean, there's been a lot of rumors flying around that they're close to reaching a settlement with several uh, authorities in, in several countries, which could be worth more than a billion dollars. UBS is very keen to get that settlement done by the, the end of the year. Uh, there's rumors that it could come this week. So that's been one thing that has been happening. The other is that there were uh, three arrests in London last week. Two interbroker dealers were arrested and one former banker who used to work for UBS. And of course, we should say that none of them have been charged. And as is typical in UK investigations, no charges are expected anytime soon. This has actually been a hideous time for UBS. I mean, this has been about as bad a year as any bank has ever had. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, exactly. I mean, as you say, I mean, in the second quarter, they ended up taking a, a 349 million franc hit as a result of the failure of execution of trades around the uh, Facebook IPO in which they're involved. And then in the third quarter, they announced a radical restructuring of their, their bank, which involved basically slashing the investment bank in half um, and 10,000 uh, job cuts in the operations around the globe. And that process prompted a $2.2 billion loss in the third quarter. And then last month, of course, uh, they were fined £29.7 million by the FSA for their control failings around the uh, unauthorized uh, trading loss caused by Kweku Adeboli. So as you say, add liable to that, and it's been a truly, truly terrible year. Do you think that's part of the reason they're pushing so hard to get this settlement done before the end of the year, that they can kind of try to put an end to all this? Oh, definitely. I mean, as you know, uh, they have a, a sort of comparatively new management team in place, uh, the chairman, Axel Weber, and the chief executive, Sergio Amotti, were both appointed last year. And, and, and they're very, very keen to, to get a line drawn under these issues as soon as possible. Uh, and the end of the year would be, be sort of one, one opportunity to do that. The problem for them, of course, is that uh, if the arrests that uh, took place last week in London end up resulting in charges, then uh, the, the issue will be around for, for some time yet. 
With the settlement, which we keep hearing is any day now, and certainly before Christmas, we've heard that there are going to be a number of regulatory parties involved, the U.S., obviously, and then the U.K., and this will be new for LIBOR. The Swiss authorities are also involved, right? That's right. Yes, the Swiss authorities are involved, too, as are the Japanese uh, authorities, as we, as we understand it. I mean, at the moment, as we understand, UBS is meant to be negotiating very hard over whether or not their Japanese unit will admit any criminal wrongdoing. That, of course, would be a step beyond what Barclays had to admit when it settled in the summer for £290 million. There, the company got a lot of credit for cooperation and timely disclosure. UBS has been trying to cooperate, but I guess we're told that the magnitude of what went on is worse. Is that right? That seems to be the, the understanding exactly. I mean, they, as, as you say, they had conditional uh, immunity granted by a number of jurisdictions. So one of the first banks to start cooperating with relevant authorities on this. But the, the sense seems to be that, and then this, is, this is a fact reflected by the size of the fine, um, which, you know, could be up to three times what Barclays pays, that the wrongdoing uncovered, or alleged wrongdoing uncovered, was so dramatic that this is any way to proceed. I suppose we'll all just have to sit around and wait for them to finally make these announcements. It, it does feel like we're counting down the days to Christmas or something. <laughs> exactly, it does. But I think they're very keen to get a deal by the end of the year, so I wouldn't be surprised if something happened this week. Thanks so much, James. Our last topic of this session is also about global regulation. This time we're looking at insurance companies. There's been a big push to decide what to do about the very biggest insurance companies and whether they should be facing the same kinds of extra capital and supervision requirements that giant banks would. Alistair's been looking at the industry's efforts to push back. Where are we these days? Yeah, that's right, Brooke. I mean, this really goes to the heart of the debate about the extent to which the whole financial services industry should be more heavily regulated in the wake of the crisis. Obviously, it wasn't just the banks that failed before the crisis. AIG had been considered one of the world's strongest insurers, but it had clearly to be bailed out by the US government. Now, insurers argue AIG was very much the exception rather than the rule, and that traditional insurance business largely survived the crisis intact. They highlight AIG fail because of losses on financial derivatives and not traditional insurance business. So the industry is essentially worried, as you say, about being tarred with the same brush as the banks. But after the financial world almost came to an end, it's understandable regulators don't want to take any chances and they're desperate to avoid a, another AIG. In terms of what the proposal is, what would happen to an insurer that is designated a global systemically important financial institution? Well, it's potentially a very big deal. If you are designated as such, you face potentially higher capital requirements, which will be targeted on lines of business that regulators deem outside the core insurance business. You could even be forced to sell those operations or wind them down. So the regulators are preparing to publish a list of insurers they regard as systemically important in April. They're looking at about 48. And then ahead of that, the industry, through its various trade associations, has been lobbying regulators quite intensely. An important deadline was just this Sunday. That was insurers' last formal chance, at least, to make their views known. So regulators are particularly keen on curtailing the sort of activities that brought AIG down. And to be fair, insurers aren't really fighting that. They recognise that arguing about that would be trying to defend the indefensible. But there's, there's an intense debate really about what these activities are. So at the moment, there's a relatively wide range of business lines that regulators consider non-traditional, non-insurance or so-called semi-traditional. And these will be the focus of the higher capital requirements. 
On the list at the moment, we have variable annuities, pretty crucial mm. financial product for US life insurers particularly. Third-party asset management is even on there, trade credit insurance. And um, there's also concern that even an insurer who doesn't that doesn't do any of these activities may still be deemed systemically important because there are other criteria on there. Like size? Size, interconnectedness, and so on. That's much more like the banks. Now, obviously, for the insurers to be deemed systemically important institution would be bad for their profit margins. For the broader financial services industry, if the insurers have to hold more capital when they do business that competes with non-insurers, you know, non-traditional, presumably they're competing with banks, is this actually kind of good news for a bank? I mean, if you're doing derivatives as a bank, wouldn't you rather not compete with AIG? Oh, absolutely. So in a way, this could almost turn out to be good news for the big global banks that already have higher capital. Yeah, I mean, the banks certainly wouldn't want to see insurers being treated more lightly than they are if they're doing similar activities. Sounds like it's going to all be really interesting. Well, I guess we'll have to wait till April to learn a little bit more, right, Alistair? Yeah, absolutely. April is uh, quite a key date. Well, thanks so much. That's it for this week and for all of 2012. Banking Weekly returns in the new year. All that's left to do is to thank Tom, James, and Alistair for their contributions, and of course you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at www.ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. 